It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Drops the throw, steps up, floats a bomb up the right seam, looking for Anderson. He's got it. They're not going to catch him. He's going to go the distance. Touchdown. Sam Darnold dials it up to Robbie Anderson. 92 yards. Bell into the middle of that line, and it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder, 85 yards. Pass thrown, there was contact with the quarterback, and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who came blitzing in. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know that's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter, at PlayLikeAJet1. And we are doing the off-season roundtables. And I'm going to bring in a surprising voice. Not surprising in the sense that he's a huge Jets fan, but more surprising in the fact that he lives down where the enemy is. And, of course, is Miami. He is the play-by-play man, the voice of the Miami Heat, and a lifelong Jets fan, Mr. Eric Reed. Eric, thanks for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. Uh, that's my pleasure, Scott. I was surprised at, at your offer to join you, and uh, eager to do so. Um, you know, Miami is is one of, is sometimes it feels like a suburb of New York. There's so many transplanted New Yorkers down in South Florida, and if you don't believe me, just go to any Dolphins Jets game, or for that matter, any Heat Knicks game. You will see plenty of Jet and Nick jerseys. Uh, in both venues, and um, uh, on, uh, there's one part of it that I enjoy, and another part I don't enjoy at all. <laughs> and you are a longtime Jets fan, going back to when you were a little kid. But what some people may not remember is that before Bob was choosing the current voice of the New York Jets, got the job. It was almost going to be you. So you could have been the voice of your favorite team from the time you were a little kid. Talk to me a little bit about that before we get into what's going on with the Jets right now. That was a, um, uh, an interesting experience that I went through back in 2000. And in my 32 seasons with the Miami Heat, it's the only other position I've ever shown any interest in. Um, and it's simply because it, it, it was a sort of a childhood dream. You know, it always... Uh, be involved with the New York Jets, uh, calling their games, um, you know, for a long time was something that I really aspired to do. And um, But I think it worked out the way it was supposed to. Bob uh, was really the next in line. He was, uh, sort of, he was doing the pre- and post-game shows back in the day when Howard David was the voice of the Jets on radio, and Bob had filled in for Howard on a number of, ca- of occasions. I jumped into it because at that time, the president on the business side of the Jets, Mr. Jay Cross, was a former uh, president of the Miami Heat organization. So it was an opportunity that, that I jumped into. Um, I was really interested in, in trying to do both jobs, which would have been really difficult to pull off. The Heat were willing to let me miss some games uh, to, to make that dream possible for me. And at the end of the day, uh, Madison Square Garden Corporation, which owned the Jets radio rights back at that time, I, you know, in all fairness, I would say they probably made the right decision. Bob was next in line, and he's done a great job for the for the 20 years since. So I think they made a great choice. And I know for me, my personality, um, I'm passionate about what I do for the Miami Heat. I would have been equally passionate uh, about doing that that job for the New York Jets. And I would have, I would, I know, I know, I would have wanted to have been in both places full time, not each place part of the time. So I think it worked out for the best. I'm still with the Miami Heat and uh, 
you know, have, have been the, the, the lone original voice uh, on TV of this franchise since its inception. And uh, still, still every Sunday I'm not working. I, I'm, I'm still watching the Jets and, and suffering the ups and downs of a franchise that we started rooting for back in Joe Namath's rookie season. I believe it was 1964. I was seven years old. And you were at the Super Bowl, right? The one and only Super Bowl that the Jets won, Super Bowl three in January of 69. You know something, I was at, I, I, I have been uh, with the Heat through three championship seasons, and I, I think that, and I also was with Providence College Basketball for, for the 1987 Final Four as their radio voice. So I've been blessed as a broadcaster uh, to been around championship organizations, but I think the, the childhood events that helped shape me, I, I was blessed to have a dad who was a, an ardent sports fan. He was a Jets and Knicks season ticket holder. So in in one calendar year, I was at game seven. You know, I was at game seven when the Knicks won their championship in May of 1970, um, and a few months earlier, uh, in December of '68, I was sitting in, in in our section. I believe we we sat in section 110 at Shea Stadium. Uh, back then, all I wanted to do was be the section 110 Jets fan of the year. They they actually gave a plaque out in our section every year, and I I always wanted to win it. Never did. But I was at the AFL championship game against the Raiders, which was a famous game in Jets history and um, and one of the great wins ever. And, you know, two weeks later, my dad and I were at Super Bowl three um, at, at the now no longer existing Orange Bowl in Miami. Uh, so to live here in South Florida, to have had a chance to relive that game often with with coach Don Shula, who's still around. Matter of fact, uh, my, my, my former broadcast partner and I, Tony Fiorentino, is from Mount Vernon, New York. We, we did a charity dinner for about 12 straight years, and every year we gave out an award in Don Shula's name, the Don Shula Sports Legends Award. And two years ago, we honored Joe Namath with the award, and Coach Shula shows up at, at our yearly dinner to, to present the award, and it was a really beautiful moment to see those two guys get reunited and when Shula presented the award to Joe Willie that day he said man haven't I given you enough in your life already so <laughs> it was really cool to revisit it 50 years after the fact in the city where the game was played um, you know they, they still call it the game that changed pro football it was one of the one of the brightest memories from a, a sports childhood that, that I experienced and influenced me to get into the career I'm in and uh, keeps me rooting for that team that wears green and white. Next time you see Coach Shula, tell him we all know that he turned those sprinklers on on purpose in January of 83. We're on to him. We know. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody that's unaware of what I'm talking about, the Jets went to the AFC Championship game in the 82 season, so it would have been January of 1983. And in that game, it has now become known as the Mud Bowl because the sprinklers were turned on and the field got really muddy, which negated a lot of the Jets' advantages because they had Wesley Walker's speed and the shiftiness of Freeman McNeil, who was practically unstoppable in the 1982 season. To this day, most people believe that Shula turned those sprinklers on on purpose because he knew that it would neutralize those two guys, but Shula has yet to admit it. Freeman McNeil and Curtis Martin, my two favorite running backs, Emerson Boozer, a close third in Jets history. I'm hoping that Le'Veon Bell gets a chance to come back next season and, and sort of follow in, in their prolific footsteps. The other thing is, for years, I tried to keep it quiet, uh, you know, that I was a Jets fan down here in South Florida. You should see the look on people's faces when they see me tailgating, you know, wearing my Jets stuff in South Florida. I've, <laughs> I've learned to watch the games from the privacy of my own home 
It's safer, more comfortable, better for my image, but it's sort of out of the closet that I'm a Jets fan down here in South Florida, even though that does disappoint uh, many members of Heat Nation and, and people down here. It's funny, though. I, I enjoy watching the Dolphins. After all these years, you know, I follow them closely, and I could watch their games without my guts getting twisted. Uh, but there's that, there's that you know, lifelong connection to, to the New York Jets. Well, Eric, if it makes you feel any better, there's a big announcer here in the New York area for one of the major New York teams who I know for a fact secretly roots for one of that team's rivals. I'm not going to out that person right now on the podcast. I'll tell you once we stop recording, but you are not alone (laughs) in being in enemy territory is basically what I'm trying to tell you. Since you brought up Le'Veon Bell, let's talk about him a little bit. What did you think about his first season here, and do you anticipate him getting traded? I hope not. I don't see, uh, and listen, I'm not a cap expert. I don't know what the cap ramifications are. I don't think there's enough to make it worthwhile. Uh, you know, I think, uh, first of all, I did like Le'Veon Bell, the kind of, uh, you know, I, I hope he shows up at the offseason stuff this year. I think that would, would help him, but would help him a lot more is, is a better offensive line in front of him. I, I think in many ways, unfair to judge Le'Veon or even Sam Darnold, because the offensive line play, although it got better late in the season, I thought it was as bad an offensive line performance uh, for the Jets this season as I've seen in a long time. And, um, you know, as, as I know fans don't like on draft day when, you know, you got the, an, an early pick and it's an offensive lineman. You know, without those guys up front, you, can't, you cannot take advantage of, of your, your skilled prize possession players so it doesn't matter how good you are in the skilled players if you can't run block or pass block none of it's going to look like it's supposed to look so I'm hoping that that Joe Douglas who obviously was a former offensive lineman he's he's got uh, I would assume great feel for that position I, I know he's aware of how important it is to, to the team so I'm sure they're going to address that and and hopefully it'll be better. But I'd like to see Le'Veon come back with a better line and and judge him there. I'd hate to, to see them give up on him after one season. Let's talk about Darnold since you brought him up too. What'd you think about him in year number two? A lot of people were disappointed with the progress that he made. Everybody acknowledges that he got better, but people were expecting that giant leap. Do you think it was a combination of factors here? I'm going to ask you about Adam Gase in a little bit, but do you think that part of it was Darnold himself, part of it was the offensive line, part of it was Gase's scheme? Where do you come down on this? Well, I think the, it started off bad when he got mono early in the season. That really did not get that, that short, you know, between C.J. Mosley getting hurt, you know, halfway through the opener where you're up 16 zip on the Bills, and then Darnold getting mono. Uh, it was like the season started and ended on opening day almost. That's the way it felt. Um, so, again, I, I think it's a little unfair to have a full judgment on Darnold when he so often had no time to even, you know, check off to a second option. Uh, so that's why I'm going to withhold my judgment. I, but I, I think what I've seen of Sam is, is the same. I talked to a lot of USC fans over the last couple of years, people that saw him play in, as a college player. And this is Sam. You know, Sam will make the occasional bad decision and bad throw, um, but he'll come back and, um, you know, he's got that gunslinger mentality. I, I think he still has a chance to be, you know, an above average, hopefully to, you know, to very, very good quarterback. I, I think you've got to be slow in your judgment of a young quarterback, um, you know, even when the judgment is positive. 
you know, Mark Sanchez, his first two years, you know, takes the Jets deep into the playoffs and never looked as good after that, right? And it's not because his skill level went down. Maybe it's because the, the, the skill level of his teammates around him weren't as good. You know, so often the quarterback or the best player on a team gets blamed for a team's failure when it might be where where it's always collective. It's not, especially in football, there's there's too many guys that go into it to ever give too much credit or too much blame on on one position. But I, I think you got to give Sam time. And hopefully that offensive line improves around him. Two years ago, the receiving core was really subpar. Last year, it was a little bit better. And uh, we'll see what it looks like next year. What do you think about Robbie Anderson, considering we're talking about the receiving core? Do you think that they need to go all out to bring him back? Well, listen, I, I follow Robbie closely because he is from Fort Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. Um, so I followed his career uh, and know all about him as a high school player and off to Temple and, and, you know, the story of his rise. I'm rooting for him. I, I think he's got some game-changing ability with his speed. Um, I was really impressed with his hands this year. Uh, he made some spectacular catches in traffic, uh, fought for the ball better than I've ever seen him do that. I think he probably ran his patterns better than he, than he probably ever has. So he seems to be on the ascent. Uh, you know, the Jets are going to have to make that decision of – you know, what, whatever his asking price is, who they're bidding against, and, and whether they feel uh, they could match that. So I hope he comes back. I, I hate to see weapons uh, walk out of your building, especially in a position that is not very deep with the Jets. But that's a decision that they're going to have to make. But if you're asking me, yeah, I want to see him and Levy on back. And, uh, you know, I want to see them add, not subtract. What about the other players that are internal free agents that are going to be key pieces here? Kelvin Beecham is one of them. A lot of people debating whether or not he should be brought back. Jordan Jenkins to set the edge. And Brian Poole, who had a really good year as the slot cornerback. Where do you sit on those guys? Ambivalent. Ambivalent, especially when it comes to line play. Uh, I think they need to do better at the edge. Uh, You know, uh, the Jets blitzed a lot. And other than Jamal Adams, didn't get to the quarterback very often. You know, as I look at it, you know, listen, this is not going to break any new ground. Anybody that watched the Jets understands where the needs are. They need better cornerback play. I thought the best cornerback play came late in the season with guys you never heard of. And Tremaine Johnson was a disaster. I mean, you know, when I saw him two years ago, I wondered, you know, did, did McCagnan and company – Obviously, they looked at tape, but this guy was so bad in his two years as a Jet that they they couldn't even play him this past season. So they need help at the corners. They need a better pass rush. Uh, Obviously, Quinn and Williams got to step up. There there were too many games that you didn't notice him at all. Um, So the the pass rush, defensive line play, um, and obviously the the biggest key is to to get that offensive line better. I I can't speak with any authority on Beecham. I you know I didn't see maybe enough of just watching and judging individual linemen, but as a group, uh, that was the weakest part of the football team. At edge, one of the guys that's expected to be a major free agent this offseason is down in Florida. I know a little further south, but in Jacksonville, Yannick Ngakwe, a lot of really premier edge talent this offseason could be available, and Ngakwe is the top of the heap. Is that the guy you would target, or would you be looking to spend that money on offensive line first and foremost? 
I, I would, you know, I don't have a good enough knowledge of, you know, all the players in the NFL. I, to be as, I'm not as aware of this gentleman as you are with the Jaguars. I don't, I don't, you know, and, and the thing that always scares me about free agency, you know, you, you don't want to build, you can't build your team around it. It's too mm-hmm. expensive. You're, you know, um, especially if you're going after the top tier free agents. So I'm going to leave that to Joe Douglas, how he spends the Jets money, um, you know, I liked the addition of C.J. Mosley and Le'Veon Bell last year, and it, and and you didn't get the immediate payback. I'm I'm hoping that will come in in year two for both of them. Um, but I'm glad they have some cap money. I'm glad they have some picks. Um, you know, the NFL, the thing that's so daunting about it, and one of the things for me as an observer watching what the Dolphins did, you need you need so much talent in the NFL. Even if you're a good team already, you need the depth because there's always the attrition of injury. So when you pare it down as far as the Dolphins did this year, that and and even the Jets, there's so many needs. Uh, so you got to spend your free agent money wisely and, and maybe not go after the top-tier guy unless you're close. If you're a contending team that happens to have cap money, you know, it makes sense. If you're a team like the New York Jets or the Miami Dolphins right now who are, you know, a lot farther away than one key free agent, I think maybe you, you go shopping for, for the middle-run guys that you're not overpaying for. I remember 1996 when the Jets went on that major shopping spree. They got Neil O'Donnell, Jumbo Elliott, David Williams, Jeff Graham, and a whole host of others. The Jets ended up going 1-15 the following season. So just spending that money doesn't guarantee anything. And like you said, we've seen the Jets do that several times, and it hasn't worked out for them. It doesn't mean that you can't add pieces, but as we know, the draft is where you go and get all of your core pieces Free agency is where you stock up on the little fill-ins. The analogy that I like to use is the draft is Costco and ShopRite is free agency. You go and get your little fill-in items throughout the week at ShopRite, but the bulk of your shopping is done at Costco where you can save the money and buy in bulk. And I think that's really what every team should look at the draft and free agency as. And so when you look at this, when you look philosophically and you look at what Joe Douglas has in front of him, what do you think he needs to do? Do you think he needs to be shopping for an entire new offensive line in this draft? Would you be going in there looking at it as a possibility to maybe draft four or five offensive linemen? Well, you know, it's funny. Listen, I work for, for, a, for a basketball team, the Miami Heat. We, we have five undrafted players, uh, you know, mm-hmm. among our top 13 players right now. Um, three, two of them are starters. Uh, a third one comes off the bench. I'm talking about our back. Kendrick Nunn and Duncan Robinson mm-hmm. are both undrafted players. Um, Derek Jones Jr., an undrafted guy who, who nightly is coming in. And, and the, you got three undrafted guys contributing to a team that is 30 and 13 right now. So it's not just about, you know, drafting. You know, as an organization, you got to do two things. You got to be able to discover and uncover players that, that others have overlooked, but you got to do more than that. Once you get them on your, in your building and at your facility, now you got to coach them and you've got to develop them because if you're expecting to be ready-made professional products, you're going to, they're going to fall short and, and you will fall short. So, that's where the whole structure of an organization and continuity and a coaching staff that, you know, a scouting staff that can pick the right guys and nobody's going to do it a hundred percent. There's no such thing. So you, there's some luck involved with as much studying and film work and scouting that goes into it. Some of it is, is some luck, 
but it's more than luck. Um, it, it's a skill to to know who to take, and and then a, an even greater skill to make these to make these diamonds in the rough diamonds. So it's a coordinated effort that has to happen between your scouting and 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 you know general manager office and, and your coaching staff. So and the other thing is you can't draft just for need because that means you're going to reach, and when your spot comes up. You, you, what you really want to do is take the best player that's on the board, uh, even though that might not coincide with your need. So I think that's the, the juggling game that, that Joe Douglas is going to play on draft day with each and every pick he has. Obviously, you know, uh, maybe there's a receiver at, uh, where they pick in the first round that, that makes him jump at that. But clearly he's going to have to address the offensive line in the draft um, and in free agency. And they're going to have to address corner and, and edge rusher and outside linebacker and, and some of the other areas of, of need as he goes through. But that, that's where you mix and match with your, your draft, your free agents, and, and then the guys you just bring in that, that could make your team and make a difference. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Eric, as you said, you work for an organization that has produced a lot of championships, and the guy at the top 
is Pat Riley, who is one of the most successful basketball minds of all time in various capacities, both as a coach and as a front office guy. When you look at Joe Douglas, I'm not saying that he's ever going to be able to measure up to Pat Riley, but you know what success on that level looks like. Do you think that he's a guy that can come into the Jets and right away build this thing from the ground up into what we want it to be? Because obviously we know that this is going to be his first draft, his first free agency period. Even though he was hired last year, this is his first real opportunity. Do you see him as somebody that could be that guy, that stabilizing force that the Heat have had for a long time, but the Jets haven't? Well, I don't know. I mean, nobody does. And, and you're, just, you're just hopeful. He's the guy that, that gives you know, hope right now that the, that the future will be better than, than the recent past. But to just backtrack for a second about the Miami Heat, Pat Riley deserves extraordinary amounts of credit for, for you know, I think it's the crowning achievement of his Hall of Fame career. He, he's in the Hall of Fame as, a, as, as, a, as one of the great coaches of all time. But to me, watching what he's done, um, the, the, the character and the culture that he's created in the Heat organization from the day he got here, um, you know, back in the late 90s uh, to now and still just as hungry for more championships and more winning. He's, he's a unique and amazing individual. But, you know, with, with the Miami Heat, and I, I think this is going to – you're going to understand why I'm, I'm making this point to you in a second. It starts with ownership. Mm-hmm. It always starts with mm-hmm. ownership. It begins at the top. And with the Miami Heat, Mickey Harrison, I, I think, is one of the most underrated and best owners in professional sports because he, he goes out and hires people that are experts in the field, um, that know what they're doing, and then he gives them the, 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 the things that they need to, to, to create a championship-type culture. Um, I don't know if the Jets have that 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 in place uh you know i if you if you look at organizations that are habitual losing programs and in in new york let's just look at the knicks and the jets i'm not sure how strong the ownership groups have been and and um and i I think that's where it really starts now i know the johnson brothers want to win um i i i'm really happy with 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 joe douglas being put in this position and i'm hoping for the best for him um We'll see where it goes. I think everybody in Jets Nation right now is is hoping that this is a good off season. You don't know during it, but you, you find out real quick whether your draft picks are who you think they are or hope they are and, and whether your free agent is going to work out. You, it doesn't take long to find out, but you, you sure don't know in the summer. You really don't. It's funny you brought up ownership because I was going to ask you about that too because – You work for a team that has a very well-respected owner, whereas the Jets' ownership is not quite as well-respected. What do you see as the key differences there? Is it just a matter of being able to find the right guys and then staying out of their way? What is it that Mickey Arison has tapped into that the Johnsons just haven't seemed to? Because as we know, the last 10 years have been mostly a disaster here for the Jets. Well, you know, it's... I'm not sure. You know, I'm here in Miami. I don't know what what the, the the corporate and the ownership structure is like with the New York Jets. I don't. I'm I'm just a fan and an outsider looking in. Um, and I think there's many. There's not just one successful approach. I mean, everybody does it differently. But I've you know, Ted Arison was the original owner of the Miami Heat, and Ted did it purely as a a civic goodwill gesture to bring professional basketball to, to, to his adopted hometown of Miami. Um, and the heat would not have 
been granted in access to the NBA if Ted Arison, David Stern, the late David Stern, made that well known. He said, if Ted Arison is not a part of the ownership group, Miami is not going to come in as an expansion franchise as they did in 1988. So that's how we started. Uh, Mickey Arison took over control of the organization in the mid-90s, and within six months of his moving into the lead position, he pried Pat Riley away from the New York Knicks. And their partnership at the top of at, at the top of the Miami Heat organization is resulted in five finals trips and and three NBA championships in the 23 or 24 years that they've been together. And I think uh, it's been a, a tremendous partnership. You know, Mickey was smart enough to know that Pat Riley was the kind of guy that could be a lightning rod for the organization. If you remember when Pat came to the Heat, he was just the head coach of the Knicks. There was no presidential responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When he came to the Heat, you know, there was some ownership stake involved. Um, The president of basketball uh, became his domain, and he had a chance to do more than coach. He imprinted the whole thing. And, you know, when when you think about owners in pro sports, these are all very, very successful people, but always in other businesses. And whether it's football, basketball, baseball, or hockey, um, you know, the first thing they've got to do is, is find an expert and somebody that knows the game and can run a team to run their team. And that's a very difficult thing to find or do. And when you're an owner that doesn't know that much about football and you've got to hire a consultant to tell you what coach to pick, um, that's, that says a lot and, um, it's hard, but it, it's hard because most, as I said, most owners have been super successful business people, but in other businesses, and it doesn't always transfer over the, the, the same way that you can be successful in, in other businesses that, uh, pro sports is unique and, uh, a business all t- unto itself and, and doesn't always follow the same principles as, as normal business. I think the last time the Jets went the route that the Heat did with Pat Riley was when they were able to get Bill Parcells from the New England Patriots, and that actually worked out very, very well, but for a much shorter period of time, obviously, because Pat Riley is still with Miami, whereas Bill Parcells moved on after a few years. But I think that says a lot about ownership in Miami as opposed to ownership here with the Jets, although I agree with you. I think both ownership groups want to win, but only one has figured out a way to put in place a structure where the winning has continued on a regular basis, and right now it's continuing for the Heat. The East is weak this year, but still, this is not a team that was projected to do that. A big part of that is because of the decisions of ownership, the decisions of the team president, Pat Riley, and also the coaching job done by Eric Spolstra. So, Eric Spolstra, who a lot of people thought was the product of just tremendous talent the years that LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh were there, has now started to show that he's a lot more than that. And that's something that Jets fans were hoping for from Adam Gase. He came from Miami, which is ironic, so you had an eye on him there because you saw him up close for three years. A lot of Jets fans very disappointed in Adam Gase, whereas right now I would think a lot of Miami Heat fans are very happy with Eric Spolstra. How would you compare and contrast the two? I know that it's two very different sports, but can Adam Gase become that guy that Jets fans are going to be satisfied with, or do you think that he may be a lost cause based on what we saw from him in Miami and then this year with the Jets? 
I'm not sure, and, it, and it's hard to say as, as an outsider looking in. And I'll tell you what, first of all, with Eric Spolstra, uh, I've known Eric since he came to the Heat you know, as, as the team's video coordinator, fresh off uh, an overseas career playing uh, for a year or two in, in Germany. And I, if you, you talk about the perfect place, the perfect entry-level job for any future head coach in the NBA is in the video room, where, think about it, you're, you're watching – Every other team in the league, you're, 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 you're studying personnel uh, throughout the NBA. You're familiar with every single play run in the league by every single team. I mean, can you think of a better place for, for coaches to be born and made and grown but the video room? And, and Spo is a product of that. And then uh, uh, an assistant for Pat Riley. Then an assistant for Stan Van Gundy. And Pat Riley, you know, one, one of the, the signs of greatness for anybody in professional sports or business, for that matter, is to be able to be a visionary, to see things before they happen, to have a feel for the, for the landscape before most of us see it. Pat Riley saw the free agent summer of 2010 coming two years prior. Matter of fact, when, and he was the one that put Eric Spolstra in place when nobody else around the country even knew his name or how to spell his name. And people forget that Spo made the playoffs with, with his first two Heat teams that had a bunch of journeyman guys on one-year contracts because Pat was trying to keep the cap space available for, for that summer of 2010 when he walked away with LeBron, Bosch, and Wade. Mm-hmm. And you're right. When, you know, the, what people underestimate about coaching great talent is do you coach them or do you just let them play? And I think – I'm just guessing with this comment I'm going to make to you, but I think when LeBron James is done with his playing career, he's going to reflect on the, on the many coaches he played for and understand that Spolster is probably the best one he ever had. One of the things you have to do as a head coach is and, and the word confrontation doesn't mean it's negative, but you have to confront your best player. Imagine sitting in a film session with 15 NBA players and you're critiquing and nitpicking and pointing out mistakes that 14 guys are making, but you don't say anything and the whole room sees if LeBron James, you know, didn't make a play on the defense, you know, and you're not going to say anything. Talk about losing credibility with the other, with the other players in your locker room. So that's what Spo did so well. He was not afraid to coach LeBron James and critique LeBron's game. And, and uh, LeBron had four amazing years when he played for the Miami heat. And I, I think learn that one little missing piece that he didn't have on, on what it takes to, to be, be a champion. And he did it twice in Miami. He's done it once since. As far as Adam Gaze goes, I don't know. You know, here, here's one reason why I don't want to judge him too harshly, too quickly, based on his persona with the media, which to me is not very strong. But, you know, I, I look at one of my favorite coaches in pro basketball, Greg Popovich, or one of the greatest coaches in the history of pro football, Bill Belichick. Um, Popovich and Belichick are both less than desirable for media people. They make it tough sometimes when you're interviewing them. But I know for sure, I, I don't know about Belichick behind the scenes. I've, I've, I've looked into Greg Popovich. We, the Heat played the Spurs two years in a row in the finals in 2013 and 2014. And during both of those series, I did everything I could. I walked through their locker room. I read, I read the motivational plaques and pictures on their, on their wall and, and talked to so many people about what goes on behind the scenes there. I wanted to study their culture. I talked to some people recently this year. We just finished playing the Spurs twice in the last week. 
And while Popovich shows one side of his image in, in his brusque way of dealing with media, he's such a different person behind the scenes. And, and he's hard on his players, but he showers them with love and attention and, and discussion about things other than just basketball. So sometimes it's unfair to just judge a coach of what you see you know, in their press conferences. One can only hope that Adam Gaze has a whole different part of his personality than what he shows uh, in his press conferences. Do you think that the fact that a lot of players seem to have spoken out against him publicly is a bad sign? Because I don't remember that being done to Eric Spolstra as an example. Well, there have been moments. I mean, you know, Spo had his moments with LeBron, and it's, it's never easy. Um, you know, it's, listen, it's, in the NBA, we call it a make-or-miss world, whether shots go in or not. And, and, you know, no coach is going to be great with a bad team. Um, you know, I think you, you, and it's really hard when you're not there and you're just watching on TV and looking in as a fan to, to really know what's going on behind the scenes. And is he the kind of guy that inspires and motivates? One of the things about Eric Spolstra, here, here's a perfect example, the, the inside of Spolstra. We have a player, I mentioned him earlier, Derek Jones Jr. He's a, a high-flying, athletic, you know, he's great in the heat zone defense, which we play a lot of. He's a tremendous leaper. The weakest part of his game is his outside shooting. So in today's NBA, where three-point shooting is everything, even guys that can't, take them, can't make them on a regular basis take them on a regular basis. So every team the Heat plays is leaving Derrick Jones wide open from three-point land. And he's had nights where he's missed a lot more than he's made. Now, the average fan, and even myself, who's been broadcasting Heat games for 32 years, you know, my gut instinct is maybe you don't take it. Maybe there's a reason they're leaving you open. Maybe you don't take every open three that is presented to you and, and you put it on the floor or you, or you kick the ball to the other side and, and make a pet. But you know what Eric Spolstra says? He wants Derek Jones to keep taking those shots. He says, I see Derek Jones making those threes every day in practice. I know he can do it. I want him to keep taking it. Now, sometimes it's painful. It's a, it could be a painful process. There was a night a few months, maybe a month or so ago, he took nine threes in a game against Toronto, and he only made two of them. And I'm looking at it thinking like, only in this time in the NBA would a player like a Derek Jones, who is not a gifted three-point shooter, take nine in a game. But it's today's NBA. And what I love about the story, and the reason I'm telling you, you this story, is Spolstra is, is infusing confidence with his players. Mm -hmm. He's telling Jones to take those shots. He's giving Duncan Robinson the green light to, to, to take the threes long before he's – you know, this year Duncan Robinson's, a, you know, one of the top ten three-point shooters in the NBA. This is a guy that was a Division three college basketball player as a freshman. So it, it's an important element for does a, a coach that, that uplifts and inspires confidence in his players and guys really want to go out and play for him. And I know it's true in the NBA. I can only imagine the same thing is true in the NFL. Uh, you can't fool a player as a head coach or as an assistant coach. You can either help them and make them better or you can't. And I, I think players, uh, you know, professional players, you know, know the difference pretty quickly. Anybody that's asking why we're talking so much about the NBA, you have to understand the reason is because of exactly what Eric just said. You have to figure out the differences 
between different coaches and what makes certain guys tick and what is able to be a successful model. And that cuts across all sports. And so you can learn a lot from what Eric Spolster has done with the Miami Heat, even though it's a different sport, and contrast it to what Adam Gase has done. And I hope going forward, and I think you would join me in this, Eric, that Adam Gase is more like Eric Spolstra going forward and a little less like some of the guys that we've seen here as Jets head coaches over the years who have been stubborn, tried to do it their way. It hasn't worked. And in the end, it ended up costing them, for instance, Eric Mangini or somebody like that. Well, listen, you know, every coach has has style uh, that they're most familiar with and most comfortable with and feel strongly about. But you can't force the style on your team mm-hmm. if they're not capable of playing that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think the concerning thing from a, from a Jets perspective, he's an offensive-oriented coach, and the offense was abysmal. It was, it was an awful offensive football team this year. Um, but again, uh, you know, is it all on gays? No. It, you know, it, it's, it's a personnel-driven league and, and business. So let's see as the personnel hopefully gets better. And if you can get better line play, uh, you know, I, I hope you're two for Adam in New York. And I know some people that know Adam well and, and speak very highly of him. I think it's too soon to have a full judgment of him as, as the head coach of the New York Jets. But hopefully with a better offensive line in place, and that's uh, purely, you know, hopeful thinking right now because we haven't started the offseason to, to see what additions. But if they can improve that, that element of it, it gives your skilled players a chance to show what they can do. And, and I hope year two is, is a better year to judge, uh, you know, Sam Darnold, Le'Veon Bell, Adam Gaze. They're all in it together. And, and that's the other thing, the accountability of players and coaches. And uh, are you taking some of that on yourself? Are you throwing it all on your players? I, I think the best head coaches in any sport uh, share in that accountability and aren't afraid to say, hey, I, you know, I made a mistake or, or I, got, I have to do better. So I, I think it's a shared responsibility when it comes to the accountability of winning and losing. No question about it, and I sure hope that the accountability is strengthened, and I sure hope that the Jets' results are better this coming year, 2020, than they were in 2019, and really than they've been over the last decade because it's been a really tough decade for Jets fans. Eric Reed, play-by-play voice for the Miami Heat, lifelong Jets fan. He's been through a lot of this, so he's seen plenty of these bleak years. I would say this stretch is probably the worst stretch that the Jets have had since The year after the Super Bowl, they went to the playoffs in the 69 season and then got knocked out in the playoffs. From that point until 1981, they hadn't gotten into the playoffs. So this is probably the roughest stretch that they've had since then. Fingers crossed that it starts to improve. Eric, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And I hope that you'll come back soon and we can talk more about stuff like this. In the meantime, for people that want to follow your work, maybe want to hear you doing some games for the Heat, talk some Jets with you on social media, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, e Reed, Miami Heat is my Twitter handle. And, uh, or you can watch any Heat game on Fox Sports Sun if you got the NBA package. Scott, I want to thank you. For giving me the opportunity to talk to you and, and hopefully to other Jet fans, uh, I, I I'm a I'm a part of Jets Nation as a fan, and uh, I know what kind of fan base it is. It's loyal, it's passionate, 
listen, you you got to be loyal to be a Jets fan because most people are front runners, and to be a Jets fan, you have had to go through a lot of thin. And I, I hope it's it's in 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 quick time uh, you get to some thick times, and we can all enjoy enjoy the hours we invest on those Sunday afternoons. It was a blast having you on, Eric. Like I said, hope you'll come back soon. In the meantime, though, make sure you're checking him out when he's doing his play-by-play for the Miami Heat. Follow him on Twitter and interact with him. He loves to talk Jets, as you can tell. He's just as passionate as everybody else. He's been a lifelong fan, and I still think it's awesome that he was able to go to Super Bowl three and that the journey almost came full circle because he almost became the Jets' play-by-play man. As much as I love Bob and I think you would have done a great job, Eric. So glad that you were able to join me on the show, and I hope you'll come back soon. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.